Go ahead, have a seat if you got one. If you don't, there's some in the front row. No? No takers? Fine. I'm glad you guys are here. That's a dangerous zone to be in. My name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Ballard. I'm glad you've joined us. Uh, just a little fact about Dylan and Olivia. They, they, they wait every October to start singing Christmas music. And, uh, and so he likes to throw them all in in these next couple weeks. So there's going to be a lot of Christmas songs. So heads up. If you like them, which do you? Okay, good. I always say don't burn them all out too quickly. Like don't start them the day after Halloween because then we're going to get tired of them, right? Wrong? True? Right, right, right. Anyways, glad you're here. Uh, one of my favorite places to go to in Seattle is the Museum of Flight. How many of you have been there? A few of us. Okay, how many of you have not been there? All right, so we can go later. Uh, no, seriously, it's one of my favorite places. When I was little, I used to dream about being a pilot, and then when I got older, I realized that that includes a lot of math, and it just was not going to go well. Uh, but I used to have these model airplanes that hung from my ceiling in my room, all the ones that I would make, and my dad would take me to air shows, and these just weren't far-off planes. These were possibilities of what I could fly if I was just better at math, right? And so a little nerd fact about me, on my phone is this little app that's called Flight Tracker, and I use it all the time, even when I'm not trying to track flights. I just like to see what airplane is that, when was it made, because I, I paid for it. Uh, I paid the, for the gold subscription. I asked Carrie if it was okay. She's like, yes, you can spend $50 and do that. But it tells me I'm a nerd, all right? There's plenty other things about me that will, we'll, yeah, you'll learn. Uh, but it tells me, like, when it was made, its flight history for the last 14 days, which is always concerning because you're getting on a plane. You're like, man, is this plane tired? It's been everywhere. But I like to do it. It tells me how high, how fast. And, and so it's really fun when I pick up my mom for the... Wow, we're way off base here. Uh, when I pick up my mom from the airport, I'll, I'll watch her plane and see if I can see it as I'm going down the freeway, like, there's mom or anybody else. So anyway, I love it. I use it a lot. Uh, but I like airplanes. So if you take that into account, why I like the Museum of Flight. Uh, it's a wonderful place to go. But one of my favorite exhibits in the whole Museum of Flight is the first one you see when you walk in. You walk in, there's, they have retired Air Force pilots there that have flown many of the planes that are hanging. And you ask them, and they'll tell you anything. But when you walk in past this little gate, there's the whole Apollo exhibit, which is fascinating. Uh, and there, there's two ways to get to it. The, the end result of the Apollo thing is you walk into this room and they have the rocket boosters. They have a mock-up of the car. They have all of the things from the, uh, from the lunar orbiter and all of the test flights and everything. It's all sitting right there. You could go in the back door and miss all of the, uh, the lead-up to the Apollo and just go right to the, the actual thing. Or which is what I do before we had children, is I would go and I would read all about the failures, all about Sputnik, all about the test flights, uh, and read all about the pilots, John Glenn and, and Buzz Aldrin, and how they led up to it. And then, even though I've been there dozens of times, and then walk in, because I think the museum creators did this on purpose, uh, you start to learn the process of what it took to get to the moon. Did you all know we landed on the moon? We landed on the moon. Uh, and so uh, it, you, you learn the process and the pains and everything it took to reach that crowning achievement. I, I think if you go in the back way, 
you miss all that. And so what they're doing in arranging this museum is they're training your eyes to see just what a big accomplishment it is that we did this. In order to see it properly, you need to grab the context of what it took to get to the moon. And I love context. I love reading all those things. And so as we are in Luke, in some ways, through Advent, Luke, as we spend time in, in, him, in his book this, this Advent, Luke is preparing us, as you read chapters 1 and 2, Luke is preparing us uh, to see Jesus. And so there's a lead up to what he does. In fact, if you look closely, Jesus isn't mentioned in Luke's gospel until like verse 30, 32. He spends a while laying the groundwork in the same way he's trying to uh, prepare our eyes to see what Jesus is all about. And so he talks about things that if you're, if you're familiar with the scripture might catch your attention. There's a, a couple that, that has been waiting a long time for a baby. And it was like, oh, this is like Abraham. This is like Samuel and Hannah. This is, this is like Samson's mother, who we don't catch her name. That always looking for the hope and preparing us to see God right in our midst. This is what Luke is doing. The story isn't something that stands alone, like, whoa, somebody in their later age had a baby. No, this is something that we see constantly going through Scripture. He's leading us to the main exhibit himself, which is Jesus. It's almost as if, and we're going to spend some time in Luke 1 this morning, Luke is using Zechariah's story to prepare us to meet Jesus in the text. But there's also a lesson for each of us that we are able to see Jesus in our everyday lives as well. Because if we're not careful, we'll miss that opportunity to see Jesus. We'll be so distracted by everything else going on, and believe me, and you probably know this, there's a lot of things going on in our world that cause our distractions. There's a poet, uh, her name is Elizabeth Brown, uh, Barrett Browning, and she has this, and it'll be on the screen, I believe, but it says this, and I love this line, earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God, that's an allusion to Moses, uh, but only those who see take off their shoes, the others sit around and pluck blackberries and dab their faces, uh, their natural faces, unaware. And what she's saying is, look, God is all around us. They're, everything's on fire with his presence. But only those who see it will take off their shoes and realize that we're on holy ground all the time. God never stops working. God never ceases to work. Uh, and I wish, I totally wish, that God would use his loud voice with us, Right? Like, that's not the way you're supposed to go, and the, the heavens shake. That's what we want. Or that there's bright neon lights that say, go here, do this, say this, buy this car, buy this home. I wish that was the case. That's not how it works. But rather, if we train our eyes, uh, even the ordinary day-to-day -day and sometimes the mundane parts of our lives are teeming with God, and we have to learn how to take off our shoes and prepare our eyes to see. And so in Luke's story, we see this displayed in the person of Zechariah. This is going to get really nerdy. Are you ready? This is another nerd fact of me, all right? Zechariah, we learned right from the beginning, was a priest. And when, he, when the, the Israelites had this thing, Zechariah was a priest, so was his father, so was his grandfather, so was his great-great-grandfather, all the way back. In fact, this is like his family business. He's a priest, and if you trace it all the way down, Luke does this for us, Zechariah's oldest grandfather that we could think of or that's mentioned here is Aaron, Moses's brother, 
who was one of the first, or the first priest. Being a priest is all that he knew. It was a family business. Not only was he a priest, but his wife, Elizabeth, came from the same family tree, or, or not like southern United States family tree, but like the, the same tribe. She was part of the priestly line as well. It was the family business. So here in Luke 1.8, it says this, once when Zechariah, who was the priest, was on duty serving as one of the priests before God. This was a normal thing that they would do. The priests weren't always in Jerusalem with the temple. Priests would have outposts. They would live in synagogues outside of Jerusalem. And they would come in for their daily rot- or their yearly rotations. They would all come in and they would take part of the worship that's happening. If you want to think of it, something that would think of the army reserves. You know how they get like three or four weekends a year where they go on active duty and they come back. We have a few army reservists in this congregation that are on duty this weekend. And so this is what they do. They go to their base and they report for duty and then they do the work. This is what Zechariah was doing. He would have been one of the 24 priestly divisions in the first century. 18,000 priests is what was around. He was a member of the Eighth Order. If you want to write this down and read all about it in your quiet time this week, First Chronicles 24 tells how it's all laid out with the priest. There was a, uh, a, a guide here. Okay, verse 9. He was chosen by lot. Uh, it was a fancy way of pulling the shortest straw. According to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So on this rotation, Zechariah went in. He went out of the sight of everybody else in the temple. And there would have been thousands of people in the temple. But Zechariah makes his way through the temple to do the table of incense. This was a huge deal. Uh, Priests would probably get to do this maybe once in their lives. Uh, And so what he would do, and we'll go through this, he would start his way through. The way through the temple as he walked towards the table of incense would have been a lot like the Museum of Flight or any museum when you're going through an exhibit. Every step he took would start to remind him of the majesty and glory of God. Every step would remind him of how God was close, not only in that moment, but in every moment leading up to it. He would have made his way through the court of Gentiles. And I think there's a picture of this. John, there it is. Okay, He would have made his way down from down here. He would go through the court of Gentiles and, uh, and through what's called the beautiful gate. There would have been 13 trumpet-shaped containers uh, for voluntary offerings. People would go and say, this is my sacrifice. This is my way of worship. Uh, Jesus talks about this section in Mark chapter 12. The temple was the hub of society. So everything looks around this. He would have walked up 15 steps to the gate of Nicanor. In Luke 8, Mary would take Jesus to these steps. And the custom was, according to the law, that on the eighth day they would present present their child to the priest in order to be uh, either it was circumcised as a boy or blessed as, as a girl. This would be the custom. And so Zechariah walks right by that. Now here's the thing about Zechariah. That section would have been entirely difficult for him. It says in the text that he and his wife Elizabeth had been praying for a baby. But in Zechariah's old age and Elizabeth's old age, this hadn't happened yet. So imagine this. You've been hoping for something for your entire life. 
And every time you walk into the temple, you see a reminder that it hasn't happened. This was a dream that he had, that he would have a child. In that day, a child meant that you were blessed by God. Not having a child was, was taboo. And so he would walk past these steps. And I have to wonder if it reminded him of that place where he hadn't seen God show up in his life. Every step he took by those places, he saw babies being blessed. I wonder how many babies he prayed for knowing that, God, I, would you give me one of these? I wonder how many babies he dedicated in that place. Imagine what he's feeling. Sometimes it's extremely hard to hold the faith that God is still moving when every time you look around, you see the evidence that he's not. In some ways, and sometimes, and I've experienced this, you stop looking for God, right? The disappointment's too hard. You stop hoping. You stop expecting. Because it's almost like I don't want to get my hopes up anymore because I've been disappointed so many times. I'm just going to let it go and I'm going to build up this defense mechanism. It takes a lot of vulnerability to hope in the face of hopelessness. Sometimes it's easier just to stop. So I wonder if Zechariah felt this way. I wonder if he's reached this point. I've been there. Perhaps you've been there. Some of us are there now, the same place Zechariah would be. Perhaps as you walked into church today, you sat down or you sat down in your quiet time or, or last week sometime you tried to pray and you thought this, oh, what's the point? It doesn't make any difference. Why are we even trying to? Is this going to change anything at all? You don't have to tell me you've been there. We can just go, yeah, I've been there. I know all about that. Perhaps, like me, at times, you vacillate between faith and abandonment, between worship and routine, between the heart's desire and the peer pressure of your family obligations. And you're not alone. You're never alone in that. Not only do we have examples in Scripture, there are people in this room that are at that point. There are times in, in my life, and even in just the time I've been married for the last 12 years, where Carrie and I have poured out our hearts for God to move every night through tears and frustrations, only to see nothing happen. My dad got sicker. Uh, my dad passed. We prayed, we prayed, we hoped, we hoped. Uh, I have another family member that is still sick. We pray and pray and pray, and nothing's happening. We went through miscarriages. Uh, when we were hurting, we were praying and hoping, and then those happened, three of them. We all have these times where it's like, man, does this even do anything? I was still unemployed. Praying was the only thing that we could do. Yet, at the same time, we wondered, is it even doing anything? Why are we even trying at this point? Is God even active? Is God even moving? Is God even working right now? We felt like Zechariah probably did. This is a big assumption. We feel like Zechariah probably did at that time, at the wit's end of our faith, wondering how much longer we can hold on. And as he looked around, going up these steps and seeing the babies being prayed for and dedicated, presented at the temple, he probably had the same response. How come they're getting what they prayed for and yet I'm not? Why is it happening like this? Which probably made it more and more painful, but like Zechariah, we kept walking. 
Because sometimes that's the only thing you know how to do, right? Sometimes faith isn't having all the evidence and everything met to you at that point. Sometimes faith is in the face of all of this pain, you take another step. Sometimes faith is the point where it's like, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is happening. I can't fix it. The only thing I can do, because you can't stop. If you stop, you're, you're done. But it's taking that painful step all over again. Zechariah keeps walking. He keeps walking through this. The next gate that he goes through is the court of Israel. And then up the staircase into the court of priests, which is reserved for the priestly staff or, or the, the temple hands, he goes into there. Here, he would see the altar of burnt offerings. People would offer their sacrifices for their sins. On, on the sides would be this, uh, this altar that he sees that's 45 feet high, a big square. It was made of this uncarved stone. It was enormous. This is Herod's temple. This is the one that was rebuilt after the captivity. He would walk by that and he would see this huge thing. That's where they would do their sacrifices. Then there were 12 bronze casted bulls. Uh, and if you've ever been down to Wall Street, kind of like that bull that's sitting there, these huge bulls where people made their sacrifices for their atonement. Just past there would be another staircase. And he would come to this embroidered curtain right where that arrow is, or, or right behind the, the laver. That's where they would do their sacrificing. And he'd come to this point, and there would be this uh, embroidered curtain with the map of the world. All of this is a reminder that God is still here. All of these things would show you God's majesty, God's presence, God's closeness. And he's walking his way through. And then he gets into this place. It's not the Holy of Holies. That's reserved for something else. This is called the holy place. The first thing that he would see would be the table of showbread. If you're familiar with the story of David, David walks into the temple one day. He's hungry. He's on the run. And he asks the priest for some food. And the priest says, I, all I have is this bread that's supposed to remain here for God. And, and he goes, I'll give this to you. Jesus recognizes this and says, even David ate the showbread. And so this is symbolic for us. The showbread was six loaves of bread cut in two to make 12, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The table it laid on was gold-plated. It represented the bread of life, a reminder of God's constant provision, both in the wilderness and after wilderness. It's a reminder that God takes, uh, provides for you. It was the picture of the manna that was provided for in the wilderness. God's constant provision, even in that moment. When Jesus said this, I'm the bread of life, He's pointing to the showbread. I'm the bread that sustains you. And this would rile a bunch of feathers. This would make people very uncomfortable and very angry with him. Next, he would walk past the lampstand. It had a wooden base that, that morphed into this solid gold staff. And then on the staff, it would branch out into uh, what would be almond flowers or the almond thing. The almond back then for them was the first thing to give fruit. It was the first fruits. Paul talks about the first fruits. Uh, later, he says, Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. He's the one we look at. He's the first one, and we get to follow suit. And so it was a picture of, of what's coming. The staff that was there would represent Zechariah's great, 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 great grandfather. It was Aaron's staff. There's a story uh, in Numbers 17, if you want to write that one and go back down. number 17, Aaron's priesthood is under suspicion. And as he's talking, God says, look at your staff. And Aaron puts the staff down, and then his staff grows an almond flower. 
to represent, no, this is God's anointed. The almond flowers right in front of the people. This was another reminder of God's presence. The command was to never let the light on the lampstand go out. It gave light day and night. It was the light of the world. Jesus would later say, what? I'm the light of the world. I never go out. I'm always here. If the symbols in the court were were symbols of power and might, the symbols here would be symbols of God's closeness, his presence. Presence and closeness is God's name, Yahweh. When Moses is standing in front of the bush, he takes off his shoes. He's in the middle of the desert. How many times has he walked by this bush? He walks up to this bush. It's on fire, but it's not burning. It's one of those things. And so he walks up and God says to him, take off your sandals. Why? Because in the middle of this desert, my presence is still here. You're on holy ground in this place called Horeb, which I've called a horrible place. I'm still here. Take off your shoes. It's still holy. It's a reminder that God's here. There was never a place where you can go where you were not surrounded by God. There's never a place in our life, there's never a place for Zechariah's walk that day where you did not see God's reminder, I'm right next to you. I'm right here. David talked about this in Psalm 34, 18. He says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 139, uh, 7 through 10 says this, where can I go from your spirit? David writes, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Sorry, lefties. Never mind. Okay. As, as he would have approached this table, these are the reminders that God's there. As he would have approached the table of incense, he would have known that this was associated with the prayers that people bring before God. It's often that, that this time would be the, it was commanded that the prayers would be a constant sacrifice. The incense never went out. Uh, this was one of the two times that this sacrifice was made, one at 9 a.m. and one at 3 p.m. You can see, read all about this in Exodus 29. It's the perpetual offering. David would later say, my prayer is set before you like incense, constantly rising. Zechariah is aware of all this symbology. He, he'd catch it every time. He knows where he is, and he'd probably taught this very point constantly, at nausea maybe. He knew the closeness of God. He prayed the prayers. He knew about them all. However, that day being surrounded by the reminders probably still stung a little bit. So full of doubt, skepticism, pain, brokenness, anger, frustrations, emotions that we can probably most assuredly uh, identify with. But see what Zechariah does here. He doesn't let those emotions prevent him from his worship. He keeps moving. He keeps going forward with what he's commanded to do. He keeps walking. He keeps pushing through the path. God never guarantees that our life will be without pain or disappointment. If you hear a pastor say that your life is going to be great, run. We follow a Savior who ended up on a cross, and we're supposed to follow suit. 
your life is going to have disappointment. The central issue that we see in Scripture is not how do we avoid pain, which is a lot of other religions in this world, a lot of other philosophies, is how do we minimize pain? How do we avoid it? The central issue in Scripture is how do we find God in the middle of it? Bitterness will yield the fruit of anger and frustration, and that saps the joy of our life. Bitterness should not be an option. Cynicism is far too easy. Trust and dependence in the middle of those will cause us to find the ultimate fulfillment in ways that we could not have even considered otherwise. Your life's going to have pain, yet when we keep walking through it, we find not that this pain and everything is wrapped up like a bow, like a present, and everything comes out, but we find perspective. Now, some of us like to paint this Zechariah guy as a faithless man, given what happens in a couple verses. But the more I think about him, the more I see a person that even though he's surrounded and filled with doubt and disappointment, he kept walking. I can identify a lot with him. I don't want to pick on him much more. In fact, I feel bad for the times that I've taught through this passage and go, look at Zechariah, what a faithless man. No, he's a lot like you and I. He kept praying. He kept hoping. He kept doing his part, knowing that even though things don't make sense, knowing that he's walking this path of disappointment, reminders on every side that that God still hasn't met his prayers. He kept moving. And then look what happens in Luke 1.11. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. It's very specific. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now, hold on. Anytime someone sees an angel, you're going to be afraid, okay? He, just trust me, every time an angel comes in, it's boo, and you're not expecting this. No one else should have been there. You would be scared too if an angel stood in front of you all the time, okay? Cut him some slack. Let's not blame him for being scared. There was no one else supposed to be there at that time. He's not supposed to see anybody. My son Judah loves to scare me, and, sometimes, and he's getting better at it, which is concerning, Okay, and so uh, I get up early. One time he was up before me and in the kitchen, and I walk out there. No one's up. It's my time, okay? It's 4.45 in the morning. This is Brad time. And then I hear, Daddy. I'm like, oh, jeez. What was that? Okay, I've been in this room and not expecting Dylan to be here. And he goes, hey. I'm like, whoa, and usually I don't get scared, okay? Imagine if an angel is standing there. He's a little bit bigger than Dylan, uh, probably longer hair, who knows, but, or taller than Judah, and he goes, oh, that would scare you. You see, right behind this altar of incense was another veil, a curtain, a door, and the, behind this veil, what was known as the Holy of Holies, in there was the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy relic of the, pe- the Judaism that day. It was said that God's presence hovered between these two cherubims. That was the mercy seat. Inside of the Ark would have been the Ten Commandments. If we've seen Indiana Jones, we know all about looking for this, right? Uh, and so as, as, as Zechariah is offering this incense, Gabriel steps out from behind the curtain. From God's very presence, Zechariah is met with a messenger from God. And what's he say? Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Well, which one? He's probably prayed thousands of them. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. Congratulations, it's a boy. He will be a joy and a delight to you in his life where there's been pain 
and frustration and disappointment. This one is going to bring you joy. He is never to take wine or fermented drink. That's a bummer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born, which is crazy. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before the Lord in, spirit, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to, to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of, of the righteous to make, people, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? Like the museum, this baby is going to make their eyes ready to catch on to what Jesus is going to do. Prepare yourself, and this one is going to make the path straight. At this high moment, God begins to reveal his plan that everybody has been wondering, how is the Messiah going to happen? And in this fresh way, he's redeeming humankind by showing us the plan is unfolding right in front of you. Mary doesn't even know about this yet. Mary gets talked to six months later. This is the first step. We got to prepare the people in order to see the Messiah. God is answering their prayers by giving them a son, but not just any son. The son is a forerunner to the Messiah. He would pave the way in the hearts for Jesus. Have you ever had news that's way too good to believe? Yeah? Okay. The doctor calls and says the scan's clear, and you're like, they weren't yesterday but today they're clear. Have you ever, have you ever had, or maybe it's, a, it's the house that you put an offer on, and for a very rare instance in Seattle, your, your offer wasn't outbid. It's like, oh, we have a house now. Wow, that never happens. The job offer comes, and there's no negotiation needed. The salary's perfect. It's everything that you ever hoped for. The doctor tells you news you didn't expect to hear. You're in the same boat as Zachariah. And when you hear the, that news, do you believe it at first? No. It's hard to believe or it's too, news is too good because good news that's too good doesn't often happen. So Zechariah is a little bit shocked. And what's the first question that you ask when you get news like that? I've been in the room when someone gets the all clear from a, a very sad idea of that they might have stage four and the doctor comes and says, we can't find it anymore. What's their response? Are you sure? What? Come again. When we put an offer on it, we lived in California. We had a condo. We put an offer on the house. Wasn't expecting to get it. My realtor friend calls me and says, you got it. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? After years of trying for a child for Carrie and I, the test comes back positive and we're like, wait, how, uh-oh. Okay. How is this, not how does this work? How, how, this is too good to be true. Then Zechariah asked the angel this, how can I be sure of this? Great question. Let's not get down on him. I'm old. Zechariah knew how things work. I'm old. And notice the way he says this. My wife is along in years. Wise man. Okay. He knew the chips were against him. He knew that, that people at this age don't start families. He may have become okay with that fact. And at some point, he's come to terms with it. So the news that this is actually happening might be a bit overwhelming. And I have to imagine Gabriel laughing a little bit. Yeah, I didn't expect this to happen either. And he says, I'm Gabriel. I came from behind this veil here. I stand in the presence of God. 
and I've been sent to speak to you about this good news. And now you're going to be silent and not able to speak until this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. I don't know about you, but I read this and instantly go, wow, that dude's harsh. He can't go out and tell anybody? Uh, Cut the guy a break. You just dropped a huge bomb on him. Let him process this a little bit before you silence him. But this is why I wonder if this response isn't really a punishment like we usually read it, but more of an exercise for you and I to take part in. He's surrounded by symbols of God working through history. He's surrounded by everything uh, that tells the story of God working through his life, working through his nation's life, working through the exile, working through the time of David and Judges and Samuel and all of that. And he's, he's in this place, and yet here is God's messenger right in front of him to give him a message that he's been waiting to hear his entire life, and he nearly misses this opportunity. And so Gabriel says, look, <laughs> you talk too much. You're going to be quiet so you can see and hear what God is doing. Perhaps he was made silent so he would have to listen to what God had been telling him this whole entire time. Maybe Zechariah sounded a lot like the story of Jacob. You know that story where he's running from his brother Esau? You would have ran from Esau if you get the description. He's a large hairy man who liked to hunt, and Jacob was not, and I would run from him as well. And so he, he's running, and Jacob takes a nap in a place overnight, and as he's napping there, he puts his head on a rock, not on my pillow, puts his head on a rock and sleeps. And as he's sleeping, a dream comes in, and he wakes up the next morning, and he says this, surely God was in this place, and I didn't even know it. Because when you're on the run, when you're talking too much, uh, you you end up missing what God is trying to say. When our mouths are going 24-7, you can't really hear what God is trying to put in. We've all been in those conversations, right? Some people are just way too easy to talk to because you don't have to do any talking This is probably what God is saying. Hey, look, I'm going to shut you up for a minute and I'm going to let your senses perceive what I've been trying to do for some time. And for Zechariah that day, it was talking. For us, it can be a host of other things that distract us from God's movement. Because God often leaves indicators all around us that he's at work in us. We just need to keep our eyes and our hearts open to see them. Talking too much is just a placeholder for me. Sometimes we consume too much and we wonder if God will provide when the whole time he is. Sometimes the monotony of life takes over and it, and it not only takes over, we're so zapped with our own rhythms and the monotony of it that we miss God's rhythm. So God allows something to happen, and what he's doing is he's trying to shake us awake so that we would notice. Sometimes the regular duties of life provide the perfect context for the extraordinary to take place. We're surrounded by miracles, but oftentimes we're far too busy to even notice it. God is speaking to us, but our lives are so loud that we never really hear it. We know the story of Elijah sitting in the cave. He's worried that that he's the only priest left or the only prophet left. And God comes to him in an earthquake and it shakes and it says that God's not in that. And then God comes with fire and burns the mountain and God's not that. Then God comes in the wind and God's not in the wind. These loud expressions of God. And then after all of those things pass, there's a whisper. 
All of the loudness drowns out the whispers that God might be saying to you. The loudness of our life might drown out the actual voice of God. Sometimes we assume too much. We assume that we know how God works. And so we'll say, that's not what God does. That, that's not the way God does it. And what we're really saying is, that's not the way I would do it. And so we put our image on what God is, and so we make God into our own image, and we create our own God, and God won't work in any way except the way that you and I are expecting. Not that we ever do that, right? We do it all the time. But perhaps that your way of thinking God would work is distracting you from the actual way that God is working. We see this all the time when we try to build furniture with instructions. I don't like instructions. I try to do it without, and I don't know of any guy that does, right? Now, I can figure this out. And then four hours later, sweat, sweat a lot of blood and tears, uh, and, and the people who live with you not wanting to be around you, you finally look at the instructions. Your assumption is not how that's supposed to be built. There's a way that's working here. And God is trying to say, no, 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 that's not the way I would do it. In fact, I have a better way a way that you didn't approve of. There's no way that God could do that. There's no way that God is moving in our world. There's no way God can move through COVID lockdowns and mandates. There's no way that God can move through a family discord. There's no way that God uh, can move through a dead-end job. There's no way that God can move through singleness. There's no way that God can move through an overreaching government. There's no way that any of this could happen, right? Wrong. God will move through all of that. In fact, he has and he will and he still does. To which I think, I like to think that this is why what happened to Zechariah that day. God steps through the veil, right? He clears his throat, and all of these assumptions of Zechariah, God goes, <clears throat> Want to bet? I can work that way. Watch this. I've done it before. You know the story of Abraham, you know the story of Samuel, you know the story of Samson. You know all of these stories where I've moved in these impossible ways. I can do it again. All through history, God has worked through ordinary situations of life, through people doing what they normally do, through messed up families, through corruption, through global pandemics, persecution, civil wars, and so many more of the dark places in life. God likes to move in the dark places. In the darkest times of life, God still moves. And he moves with those people with a mixture of half faith and devotion, holding themselves ready for what God might do next. And what God has in mind. Our responsibility, especially in this time in Advent, and especially in the world in which we live in, we need to learn how to see God's movements. Like the entrance into the museum, we need to prepare ourselves in order to see him. And the preparation looks like this. The more time you spend with God, the more you're able to recognize how he works and how he moves. The more time you talk to God through prayer, through scripture, through silence, the more you're familiar with his tactics. The more time you spend with God in worship and scripture reading, the more you're able to trust his hand is moving all around you. It's why we'll always say, in your quiet time. Because how can you learn God's voice if you never listen to God's voice? Do you remember the world before caller ID? Many of you don't. Uh, that's okay. You used to learn people's voices. It didn't flash on the screen and go, I don't want to talk to them. You actually had to take a risk and answer the phone. And then the worst part was when they didn't say who it was, they would say, hey, Brad. And I'm like, I don't know you. Hi, who's this? 
okay? It's the unidentified number, okay? Sometimes God's saying, I want you to learn what I sound like, so when I do call you, you answer it, and you know the voice right off the bat. When my mom or my dad would call me on those old phones, the antique ones with the circle, I would know their voice. Oh, I even know beyond that. That's my mom. I know that voice. That's my brother. I know that voice. And so in this time of darkness, in this time of life, what many of us are in, the personal practice of sitting with God for an extended period of time, you learn that he's moving through all of this. God is moving in the darkness. He's preparing, we need to prepare our eyes in order to see it. No one expected Jesus to come as a baby. No one expected Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a boy named John who would shake the world up him himself. But that's the way he worked. This week, the Advent practice, if you didn't get your Advent box, they're out in the the foyer. If you want one, grab one. If we're out there, we have dozens left. Uh, There's a practice there of sitting in a dark room and lighting a candle. And what happens when you're in the darkest room of your house and you light the candle and you sit, pretty soon your eyes adjust even to the smallest amount of light and you are able to see everything in the room. But it doesn't happen instantly. It's a slow burn, pun intended, uh, of the candle. And then pretty soon you begin to see the details of everything in in the room because of the smallest of lights. What's happening? Your eyes are adjusting. He's taking you through a process like the museum to say, I work in ways that you never expected. I need you to pay attention for it. It's the same way that we move through the cross and salvation. No one expected the Savior of the world, the Messiah, to die on a cross. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't compute. But what happened? The cross. Foolishness, as we talked about last week, to some but to God, it's the wisest plan in the world and the only thing that would work. We don't get it. We miss it. The people in that day miss it. My prayer is that you and I, as we're walking through the museum of life, would notice what God is doing. And perhaps, perhaps, you need to be quiet long enough to see it. I hope it's not quietness where you take a vow of silence for another nine months. That's not what we're thinking. Some of you should. I should. But maybe there's some time where you sit quietly before God and simply ask this question, what are you doing? And it's always followed with, how is this going to work? And then your eyes are open. How is God going to work through vaccine mandates that are threatening people's jobs? How is he going to work through that? He's worked through tougher situations. How is God going to work through families being just pulverized during this time? How's God going to work with this higher cost of living that's coming out? God, how, I don't know how you're going to make us pay bills, but you will. I need to see you. I need to open my eyes to come to the realization that you still work, which is what Carrie and I are still doing in our marriage. It wasn't just the three years. It's been an everyday thing ever since. God, how are you going to work through this situation. It's not a one-time deal. It's an over and over and over, constantly giving you the eyes to see God's transforming work in your life, in the world around you, preparing you to see him. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you that you still move through all of the toughness that we see around us. This world is dark. And we, all we see is the darkness. We're surrounded by it. But like the lampstand that Zechariah walked by, you're the light of this world. And your light never goes out. And so God, may we focus on this light not to whitewash things or not to put everything in a rose-tinted glass or whatever the idiom is, but so that our eyes would adjust to what you're doing in the midst of us. God, for some of us, may you eliminate the distractions that pull us away. The distractions that take us from hearing your voice, the distractions that silence you, the, that drown your, your noise out. May we begin to see with new eyes what you're doing. May we begin to catch your rhythm and feel how you're moving and working. May you guide us away from cynicism. May you guide us away from disappointment and belief. May you hold us in there and meet us in those places. But would you draw us out of them into hope and faith? May we, like Zechariah, keep moving until we're face to face with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. For some of us, this might be uh, a little awkward for you, but if not, uh, that's great. We have uh, communion available. Uh, on the top side is a wafer. It's COVID-friendly. Uh, on the top side is a wafer, and it's all, I call them communables. Uh, but it's, it's over there. Uh, it's a way for you to recenter yourself. Uh, it's at the foot of the cross, because at the foot of the cross, things start making sense. And so perhaps today is a day where you take communion, and your prayer is simply this, God, open my eyes so I can see so I can see you working, even in the most difficult of situations. As you're ready, uh, there's no real protocol. Just stand in line, and, and, and it's over there for you. If we run out, we have plenty more. We'll get, we'll get more of that.